You are listening to the Build Your Network podcast. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode today on the show. Super stoked to have this guy on. I've been meaning to do it for a little while now. So I'm really happy that we're able to sit down with them. Elliot Biznow is joining us on the show today. He's the co-founder of Summit Group. And he's also a startup investor, having made almost 50 early stage investments, including Uber, Coinbase, Warby Parker, and Allbirds. At just age 20, he started Biznow Media with his dad, Mark, out of his college dorm room. And get this... Over the next decade, they grew the business together into the largest commercial real estate media company in the world. And then it was acquired in 2016 by Wix Group. So now as the co-owner of America's largest ski resort, Powder Mountain, now lives in Eden, Utah, and sits on the board of Lindblad Expeditions. But today he's joining us from Miami because it's too cold in Utah. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, Elliot. What's up? Hey, guys. Let's do it. I'm excited to chat. So before we get into anything practical career-wise, I'd like to rewind the clock, take it back to how you got into this crazy world, So especially at such a young age. So let's rewind the clock, man. Maybe a 10, 11-year-old Elliot Biznow set the scene for us and talk to us about what life was like at that point in time. 10, 11-year-old Elliot was very go, 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 but I was not grounded. I did not have any of the practical social skills, so I was all over the place. And uh, I think to an extent, I was pretty lost. Like I knew I wanted to be entrepreneurial. I played sports. I, uh, like I was obsessed with sports and I played tennis growing up. So I applied a lot of my efforts to tennis, but like I, I just I um you know I did not do well in school although I like school and then I applied to seven colleges I only got into one which was the University of Wisconsin and when I went there just didn't do well in classes but again I really wanted to do well but I think I just couldn't apply myself I had never heard of an entrepreneur growing up like I didn't even know you could have your own business uh, it was not a thing like now it feels like anyone can start any business. What, what, what did your what did your dad do? What were your parents doing? My parents were in politics, and then you know my dad worked at you know some tech some tech businesses, and my mom had a nonprofit. But even when I would hear about you know the founders of the tech companies, it was too esoteric to understand how they'd started them. Like mm-hmm. it was it was too far fetched. It, it didn't seem attainable to someone. Sure. And so when I got to college, I had you know kind of this aha experience in my freshman year where. Somebody in my dorm, the RA, the resident advisor, kind of the person who's supposed to take care of the freshmen, and they were you know a few years older, they had a screen printing machine and they were screen printing t-shirts. And when I met them, I asked them what they were doing, like who hired them to screen print all these t-shirts. And they explained to me, they took their savings, they bought the screen printing machine for a few hundred bucks. They screen printed funny t-shirts. They made a thousand dollars a month. And they applied that to their tuition. And then the reason they were the RA, the resident advisor, is that's how they got free room and board. So they were going to college for free. And I 
I called my parents. I said, this person said that he just has his own business. Like, is that it's not real? Like, is he, <laughs> yeah, that true. sounds like a scam to me. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was it. I mean, that, that put me into this over the next, you know, month, just blowing my mind. What do you mean? You could set up your own LLC for a few hundred dollars. You could buy the equipment. Cause until that moment, I, I had never fathomed that I could start my own business. Yeah. It was, wasn't even on the radar. Not on the radar. What were you going to school for then? I didn't declare a major at that point. I mean, I was just going to school because you're supposed you're to go supposed to college. To yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, every person from my high school went to college. I mean, if you didn't, they were like, you know, look at Johnny. Yeah. Poor Johnny <laughs> didn't get to college. You know, and I'm the only person I think, in, I was the only person in decades of my high school who dropped out of college. Like mm-hmm. it, was, it was, in fact, I went back to one teacher and I told him, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, of leaving school because I... After I met this this um, this student who was the RA, I was really inspired to start a business, and I ended up starting a few businesses. So when one of them started doing better, I was you know very thoughtful about. It. I thought you know the reason to go to school is to make connections, to grow up, to learn, and then prepare yourself for the world. So if you have those things, maybe it would be okay to leave a little early, right? It wasn't a rash decision like screw this, I'm leaving. Like I really enjoyed. I mean, the University of Wisconsin was awesome, but I thought you know I think after two years, I think I'm. I'm ready to go do this business. And I went back to, I was at my high school chatting with the teacher and they said, you cannot leave. I said, why? They said, you need to have this piece of paper. Like if you don't have that degree, that that's the reason to stay. And, and that was one of, there was a few defining moments, but having someone tell me that the reason I should stay was to have a thing. It's like, no, the reason to stay is to learn. That's the only reason. I mean, in fact, if they had said, Elliot, you need to stay because there's these amazing courses and that's the reason to stay, right? And I, in fact, when I left school, my learning only accelerated. I was voraciously reading books. I was, you know, meet everyone I met. I was grilling them with questions. I was reading the, uh, we, we, we spent the last two years reading this book. And there's this scene at the beginning of Make No Small Plans where I go to the library to study for finals in college. And uh, everyone takes out their their notebooks and their, their like actual books for the final exams. And I take out a Wall Street journal and the kids are like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be studying. I'm like, I'm studying the world. <laughs> and so like, I was a little off the deep end. I was not, like I said, so totally socially calibrated, but I was like obsessed with learning. And so when I left college, like I feel that's when my learning only continued to accelerate. I think that's potentially one of the one of the downfalls of college is that it almost programs people to only learn in a classroom setting. So when they leave college, they they look at it as like, well, I've achieved all of the learning that I need to achieve in order to do this thing now because this piece of paper says so. When they missed the reality that life is nothing but learning all the time. Like it, it should never stop. The classroom just helps facilitate that because... Maybe you don't have the discipline or you don't know what to study or you need somebody to help you work through the material or something like that. But it should not be the period at the end of your studying career. You know, it should be the semicolon because you got to keep going and studying and learning has uh, got to be a part of your normal day-to-day life or you will only be the 21-year-old version of yourself that graduated from college. Yes. So when you were when you decided to leave college, was that with the real estate business or was this a different business and then didn't go well and you 
moved into the real estate? So after a couple of businesses that did not work in college, uh, two years straight, in fact, where you know I couldn't get any clients, I had no revenue, I burned through all my savings. Like I, I was so, I was so broke in college because uh, you know I came from a, a, a well, like a you know well-off family, and I always had always had anything, everything growing up. My parents didn't give me anything in college. Like I was so broke that I. I would walk five blocks in the freezing cold to go to an ATM to save the $2. And I was only taking out like $20 at a time. You know, where I wouldn't, I, I would literally, I think, go to a Cadoba instead of like a Chipotle because, you know, it was, it, it, there was a better deal. Like I literally had no money and I was eating this dorm food that was a disaster and I couldn't buy anything I wanted. And I remember going to sushi one time and I didn't order the sushi because I couldn't fathom eating these rolls that were like, 75 cents per bite or a dollar per bite, right? Like I was, <laughs> yeah, and I had never seen money. And, you know, these, these first years did not work. And so my dad, he had uh, written a couple books and he had this idea, he just loved writing. And he had this idea to start writing about what was happening in uh, commercial real estate in Washington, DC. I don't know why, but that was like his quirky idea was, I'm just going to send a newsletter to my friends about the happenings in real estate. And then, you know, real estate's really interesting. It turns out like who built the buildings, who financed them, who developed them, who designed them. I mean, the, our entire world we live in takes place in commercial buildings. Even the, our yoga studios in a commercial building, your favorite restaurant, yeah, even the condos that we live in or apartments, when you develop those, it's considered commercial. And so he started writing about commercial real estate and I kind of waved my hand. I said, hey, I know you only have a couple hundred readers of this free email you send out, but like, what if I join and I'll sell advertising? And I, you know, you be the writer, I'll be the ad salesperson. I mean, that was the business. Like there were no employees, there was no revenue, there were no sponsors. The only people who got the newsletter were a couple hundred people that were, I guess, my dad's friends. And I jumped in and uh, we started, you know, we put a, you know, click here to subscribe button and then, you know, started, you know, really planning out the content. So it would have some virality to it and people would forward it around and new people would sign up and we put some, you know, advertising banners on the side. This is in uh, 2006. And I just started, you know, pounding the phones, you know, making cold calls from my, my dorm. My, my, and then I was in an apartment. My rent was a $600 a month. And, um, yeah, I started, I started making sales and I started, you know, with sales that were $6,000, $10,000, And when I was like junior in college, like we started, like I started getting like 50 and hundred thousand dollar checks uh, to my dorm. Like I would put sweet 702 instead of like, you know, dorm 702. Yeah, right. um, and my parents were getting checks to the house, like 20,000, 50,000. And that was just for ad spots on the newsletter. Yes. I mean, you know, because someone would pay 10,000 a month. So it'd be, you know, 120 grand for the year for an ad campaign. And, and, and you know, many... that money was getting reinvested to the business. I'm not, you know, pocketing sure, it. But sure. suddenly I'm in college getting, again, like I was trying to save $2 on an ATM and I'm getting $20,000 checks. Right. And so when that, when that happened, <laughs> no, no, because the money was all reinvested into the business and I still couldn't fathom it. Like, uh, there, I, I couldn't even fathom that I was growing up and becoming an entrepreneur. I didn't even classify myself as that. So I literally didn't stop going to the cheap ATM, uh, the free ATM. And then it, it was kind of with that mindset as the business was working, I thought, Hey, I'll take one semester off. And I'll go work for my, from my, I'll go move back into my bedroom. Then I'll save the money on the rent. And so I moved back to Washington, DC and I, I worked from home. What was the next step after that? Like, wow. How do you go from, yeah, we're, 
we're selling ads in this newsletter, you know, with a small niche subscriber base to now we're exiting a decade later and we're buying a mountain. Yeah. So one of the turning points, there were a few leaving college, but this one day I was, I always loved walking to class because in Wisconsin, there's 40,000 kids that go to class. I, I really loved you. You could feel the energy. I think the first class was at 8 a.m. and you could feel like the energy of maybe five or 10,000 people walking down the, the state, state street or walking down the main streets to class. And I would always walk and freshman and sophomore year, I, I really loved it. Uh, just, I just, there's something about that morning walk. And this one day, junior year, I was walking down the street and I looked behind, I looked behind me and I could see all the faces going the same direction. And for some reason in that moment, I just thought, man, like I'm not even at that good of a college. And I'm, and this is just the 8 a.m. class and there's a 9 a.m. and a 10 a.m. And there's all these people just at my college. And then there's all the other big 10 schools. And then we're not even in the Ivy schools. And there's schools in other countries. And everyone's kind of doing the same thing, walking in the same direction. And I don't even have that good grades. And I just kind of realized in that moment that maybe the most important thing was being different. And I just turned around in that moment and I walked into the sea of faces. And I, I walked through these thousands and thousands of kids. And I, I just, yeah, I just kind of thought in that moment, you know, I don't think I'm going to make it if I go with all these folks because I'm not that I'm not smarter than them. I'm not more driven than them. And I, but I think we're all following the same path. So I think at least if I do a different path, I will, I would stand out. And and that was like a a big driver. So I moved back in and and really one of, one of the turning points to answer your question is that after a year of building this business, and doing all the things a typical business would do, we had to find office space and hire a few people you know, at least I had a little bit of self-awareness. I went to a retreat once a few years ago and I, you know, they're trying to give you all this self-help stuff. And at the end of the whole retreat, the whole point of it was like, all that matters is that you're aware. And then if you're aware, that's really all you need because most people just aren't aware. And I couldn't, I went up to the, the person right here. I said, that's it. That's the <laughs> takeaway. Just being aware. You couldn't have told me that on day one. Yeah. And uh, you know, he's, uh, it's kind of a funny thing to look back on, but I think, you know, so many people, and including myself, we lack awareness. And the first step really is being aware. So I was aware that I was clueless. Like I was aware that I was good at sales and nothing else. So I started to read some books. It wasn't making a huge breakthrough. I didn't know what books to read. I didn't know how to apply it. And I had this idea to cold call people that I'd read about in you know, Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine, Forbes, and other entrepreneurs I'd read about and invite them on a ski trip. And so some of the people I'd read about were uh, Blake Mykoski, the founder of Tom Shoes, and Ricky and Josh, who founded Vimeo and College Humor. Anyway, the long story short is I just started cold. I, I was used to cold calling people because I sold ads, so I wasn't afraid of rejection. But I, I started cold calling these people. And the first summit ever was 19 people who were all startup entrepreneurs. They were all in their mid-20s. And we went to Utah for a weekend. And that was like the real accelerator is I went from like this kid living with my parents, no connections, no resources, no idea really how to build a business to suddenly I had 19 new people that were really, you know, they weren't, you know, you can't cold call celebrities or really successful people. These are people, you know, maybe a little bit ahead of me. On the come up. 
Yeah. And, you know, there was a that was a generational moment in like 2006 to 2009. There was a new generation of people like as soon as the iPhone came out, now all these things could be built on that platform. Yeah. Right. It was kind of like a mad dash, if you will. And from that event, the next summit event was 60 people and everyone invited a few people, which is six months later, suddenly 60 people came. So within now, like a year and a half, I had, you know, you know, 80 new, you know, peers and people to connect with. And these people ended up being really successful. Like Garrett Camp and Travis Callan, who started Uber, came on the second event. And Chris Saka, who, you know, built the best, you know, most successful venture fund in history came on that event. And this was before they started those, you know, that venture fund or those companies. And everyone loved it because they never met this kind of generation of folks either. Like sometimes when you're an entrepreneur, it feels like you're an island and you know there's other islands out there, but you can't see them. And so you just feel alone. And those initial events, they really connected a generation of people. Yeah. So that, that was the first step to how did I get there? That was pivotal. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. What was the structure of those events or at least the first event in terms of, you know, how long was it? What were you guys doing on the daily basis? Did you, is this something that you covered the whole cost of? Did you, did everybody pay for themselves? Were you making a little bit of money on it? What was the structure? Yeah, great. So, so our book that we wrote, it's all about like the craziest 1500 days of my life, right? The book ends when I turn 26. I'm, I'm, I'm 36 now. So the book is all about basically from that day I dropped out of college and I'm looking through the sea of people and saying, I'm going the other way until the day we signed the deal to buy Powder Mountain Ski Resort. And mm. all of that happened from zero connections, clueless college student to buying a ski resort in about five or six years. Wow. 
And so on that first event, and it was just go, go, go. And, you know, there was a lot of bite off more than you can chew and figure out how to chew later. And, and um, you know, like the first event, you know, there was no Airbnb. I did, I'd never been on a vacation without my parents. You know, my mom, I asked her if she could help me find the rental house. I put it all on my credit cards. After the pe- folks said yes, I got some sponsors to cover part of it, but I lost $7,000. Yeah, like I pitched a venture fund that I cold called and said, Hey, I'm going to have all these next generation entrepreneurs. Um, would you guys want to sponsor this event? I got 10,000 bucks from a venture fund. I got 10,000 bucks from a real estate brokerage, uh, Joe's Lang LaSalle. I said, you could send one of your brokers with this group. What if one day they need a lot of office space? So, you know, the first event, like I didn't know how to throw a party. I didn't have any co-founders. So you took you know, on all the expenses yourself. Yes. And it was all free. I flew everyone out first class. The, the event was about 30 grand. And I managed to get, uh, you know, all but about, you know, seven or 8,000 bucks back. Wow. But yeah, yeah. So we did it. And, and, you know, I didn't even tell the attendees that they were sharing rooms. They just arrived and putting <laughs> me with a random person. You know, people thought I was going to, you know, kidnap them and sell them timeshares. <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. But, the, you know, the main takeaway is would it have been better to not do it? And, you know, save my ego and save my pride and not look like a moron? Mm. Or, you know, was it better to actually do it? And there's a, there's a, you know, a funny part at the end of beginning, at the beginning part of our book where, you know, I thought, you know, maybe these people kind of like me, even through this awkwardness, maybe they see the entrepreneur in them. And, uh, you know, it turned out that, it turned out that everyone wants community. Everyone, you know, is busy building their business and everyone needs you know, peers in whatever industry they're in. And so for this new generation of entrepreneurs, like they were also kind of on islands. And here I was with this, you know, maybe not executing it very well, hosting an event for them, bringing them together. And, you know, from there, I met a couple of folks, young kids, just like me, early 20s, who became my Summit co-founders. And for the next decade, you know, we built Summit Series, our, you know, events company that, you know, you know, where we would, you know, end up putting on festivals for, you know, thousands of people with a hundred speakers and 50 musical acts. And, you know, for a decade, we're basically, you know, putting on these surreal events all over the world. It sounds like you mentioned like the island idea, right? So there's, you feel really alone. Like there's not other people that are, you know, validating what you're doing. So you feel like you're just the only one that's going this direction. What got you through the two years of businesses failing where, you know, you have the majority of people saying you should just be back in college, get back to a safe position, safe job, safe thing. What carried you from that to say, like, maybe I am onto something up until you get to the people that do validate it, the the 20, 30 people that, you know, are doing the same thing and are kind of going the same direction? Yeah, well, definitely whenever you want to do something new, basically everyone says it's a bad idea. And then when the new things work, new thing works and you want to do something, you know, off of that, they say that's a bad idea. And when that works and you want to just basically everyone says everything's a bad idea. In fact, when I, when I pitched the first summit, you know, originally I actually called people that I met through selling ads and I called these people that I met, maybe only met them a few times. And I explained the idea of the summit and they said, why would I want, you to throw an event, like you, you're just an ad sales guy, you know, or, or I called a lawyer. I said, a friend of mine, I met him as a lawyer. He said, why would I want to go meet random people? Like I need to focus on law or people, you know, like no one was interested in my event. Like I got all no's. And when I reached out to other entrepreneurs who actually didn't know me, there were two things that happened that I, I never would have realized. The first is 
that entrepreneurial people do entrepreneurial things. Mm. It's kind of like my favorite quote is adventures only happen to the adventurous. Like you can't have an adventure happen to you if you don't do anything adventurous. But entrepreneurial people are more open to entrepreneurial out there ideas. Whereas more traditional people, they can hear the same idea and they just immediately reject it. Whereas the entrepreneur thinks, eh, you know, let's play with it a little bit. Let's, sure. what, what is the worst that could happen? In fact, Ricky and Josh from College Humor, they had a friend, Ben Lear, uh, who started Thrillist, who had a house in Park City. And they thought, you know what? We're going to get this goofball Elliot to pay for our first class tickets. We'll go to his event. If it's a good event, great. If it's yeah. not, he's just flown us round trip to Utah. We're going to Ben Lear's house. <laughs> and Ben, and they got me to bring Ben Lear on the trip. So like, he's going to fly all three of us out for free and back. If it's not good, we leave in an hour. Trips on him. So entrepreneurs have that kind of mindset. And I think that the second thing is that people who don't know you see you for exactly who you are in that moment. You know, you can bring your new self to them. Whereas very few people who've known you your whole life or three years or five years see you for who you are now. You know, right. you know they, they so always true. see you for the punk that we all were or the goofball, unsuccessful person that, you know, we all were. There's only a couple people in my life who knew me all the way back in college and high school and truly in their heart see me for who I am today. There are a couple. And they really, they can look into my eyes and say, wow, like I see who he is today. But basically everyone else, they just can't get it out of them. Mm -hmm. That I was a bad student, that I went to a bad college, that I didn't get in any of the colleges I applied to, that I was poorly behaved, that people weren't friends with me, that I tried too hard, that I dressed like a tool, blah, 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 blah. Like people just cannot get that out of them. And so when I called the people who didn't know me and I said, hey, I'm 22. I have a new startup that I've been doing for two couple of years. I'm getting other entrepreneurs together. Like they just saw that for what it is. They didn't think about all my past. And so you know, the two years, you know, look, it was great to work with my dad because we pushed each other forward, but it was very hard. I, I feel like, you know, at the end of every week, I would basically cry and think the business was going under and I was going to, you know, ruin our family. And like one of the best things I realized after all these years is the best part of any business in my experience is having co-founders and partners. That's it. Because all business is hard. Anything you do is hard, hard in a good way, hard in a bad way, doesn't matter, but it's, it's just, it's hard. And doing it with, with people that are, you know, shoulder to shoulder in it, you know, thick and thin, that can make it fun. That can pull you down. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's another great story in our book that I blew up the summit community after the second event. Like I, I, I done the first event, the second event, everyone loved me because there were free events and, I needed to charge because now I wanted the event to be 120 people. And instead of communicating the, you know, the change in cost, and here's why, like a, you know, for if you're signed up to Spotify or Netflix, you know, Amazon, they they nice communication. Here's why the price is going up. I just botched it. And I just started, I tried to charge everyone for tickets and I I blew up the community to, to the point where someone, you know, leaked my email to Gawker and they put me on the front as like, you know the biggest event moron in America, like, like that kind of what? stuff. Right. Oh yeah. And so I, I fully blew up the community. It's like 13 years ago. And, you know, I, I was just ready to give up. And at that point I had my three co-founders after the second event and they were the ones who, you know, you know, it was interesting. 
they didn't have those relationships from the first two events. Only I did. So they didn't really care that I blew up those relationships. Like, yeah, we didn't know them anyway. Yeah. And right. they were like, you know what? It's okay. Let's rebuild. We still got a few people who like us, you know, let's get in it together. So, you know, I cannot imagine not having co-founders. Like, I just love it. Like loved having my dad and some of the other early employees loved having my summit co-founders. That was my favorite part of all of this. And I think that's why, you know, just writing this book with my co-founders was really, really fun. Like I would never consider, you know, writing a book without them. Talk to me about the Powder Mountain deal. How, how did that come up? Why was it something that you were looking at doing? And uh, any sort of details or specifics you can give us? Yeah, so we were we just completed an event called Summit at Sea, right? If you can imagine Summit continuing to grow from, you know, 60 people, 120, 250 people, 750. And then we did this event, Summit at Sea. It was on a cruise ship, 1,400 people. Richard Branson was the keynote. The Roots were the house band. And I mean, it was off the charts, like full buyout of a cruise ship, of bananas, like mind-blowing. Uh, content, music, it stopped at this island. I mean, it was... And uh, so... We finished this event just like loving putting on events, loving building this community. And one of our attendees, Greg Morrow, reached out, got, got introduced to us, reached out to us a few months later, and we got together, you know, because we were always meeting the attendees. And Greg was a really impressive uh, entrepreneur, venture capitalist. And in the course of our conversation, Greg told us about this ski resort called Powder Mountain that was for sale. So again, I was um, 25 years old, 26 years old. What time frame is this? What year? 2011. Okay. Um, and he told us about Powder Mountain that was for sale. We were in like the depths of the, the Great Recession. And I think what was so interesting is that if you zoom out, there's just, there's really great precedent for all the places that we visit and that we enjoy being created by entrepreneurial groups of people, mm-hmm. whether it's Soho in New York or areas of Brooklyn, whether it's the Windward Walls in Miami, or I'm reading a book all about, um, you know, the development of South Florida now, you know, Miami, Coral Gables, Coconut Grove, whether it's, you know, Santa Monica, Venice Beach, Portland. I mean, you can, you can literally boulder, you can go to, you know, Aspen, you can go to any place in the world and just look up the history of that place. And it's generally not accidental. Like there's very entrepreneurial people and groups of people that help lead that development. And so, you know, Greg explained to me this and he said, you know, what if we team up, you know, he had a background in finance and, and uh, you know, what if he led the development and the finance and we helped bring community there. And a lot of these places, you know, were built on, you know, first getting community to these great places. So, you know, we, after I met him, we flew out two days later, we flew out to Powder Mountain and there it was, you know, 10,000 acres, beautiful, pristine wilderness, you know, 90 minute flight from, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, nonstops to 90 cities around, you know, North America and, you know, Europe. And we were just blown away. Like, wow, like we could, we could really build this place. And so over the next two years, you know, we worked to raise money to buy Powder Mountain Ski Resort. Again, because it was in the, you know, Great Depression, the, the, uh, the owners were very eager sellers and we were able to work out like a really favorable deal with them where we could put some money down and, you know, pay the rest over time. And uh, then we had to find entrepreneurial people who were, you know, interested in our vision of building this community on Powder Mountain. And, you know, we just gritted and scrapped and, you know, we hosted a hundred events basically over the next few years, bringing people out there, showing them the vision, you know, and the book, this book that we wrote ends on the day that we buy Powder Mountain. Yeah. And, And we think, my gosh, like, wow, we own Powder Mountain. Like, 
All right, here we go. We look at the future. <laughs> Can you hold up the, the book uh, one more time, please? So Make No Small Plans is what Elliot and his co-founders put together. And man, just talking to you, we've had a lot of people on the show, but talk, talking to you though, it's there are not many people that I can think of that would be better suited to write a book like that than someone like you with the, with the story that you have and putting together some sort of, was it a syndication or a fund or how, how did you guys structure that deal? Or Powder Mountain? Yeah. We did something called a founding uh, members program, which is actually really common in golf communities. So, and it's been done thousands of times whereby like a golf community you know, how it'll work. You'll, you'll sell, say, say a golf club has 500 memberships they're going to sell. And then you buy a membership and then you pay annual dues. They might say that, you know, the first 25 members, you know, when they sell then the, say the 300th membership, they'll get a percentage of their money back. And then the next 25 members, they'll get a little less percentage of their money back. And on the next 25, um, you know, maybe they'll get some club credits or a, a locker, right? And so the founding member program, instead of going to traditional capital partners at the beginning, who are you know, more focused on the bottom line, what the founding member program does is you go to the actual people who are going to be your members and you say, yeah, hey, sure. if you come in early, you can get these, you know, maybe it's no dues for five or 10 years, whatever. There's, you could give um, certain- Deals on amenities or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You, you yeah. can, uh, yeah, exactly. You get the, the best choice uh, of the ski locker, whatever it is. Um, so we, we did a program kind of like that. And- yeah, cool. We went to folks and we did this founding member program where the earliest folks would get, you know, some percentage of their capital returned when we hit milestones in the future. And yeah, and then, you know, it's also incredibly complicated because you can't sell real estate at the beginning, right? Because real estate is regulated, you know, and, you know, in order to sell real estate, you need to own the property, you need roads, water, sewer, power, entitlements, and zoning, Right. Like entitlements is how much you can build. Zoning is, you know, what you can actually well, build. And then, build, you know, yeah. roads isn't like a dirt road, like, you know, you need five inches thick of uh, asphalt. Like I think our roads were $5 million a mile. Right. You know, and we, we ended up partnering with the county on a municipal infrastructure bond. So the roads then the water, the sewer, the power. And if you don't have those things, you can't sell real estate. Right. Like when you go and buy a, a home site somewhere, you know, it, it's called having your home site stubbed out. So when you buy a home site, like you just, you build a home, you're actually allowed to build the home. It's actually next to a road and it actually has, you know, water, sewer, power, you know, now, maybe, you know, internet or fiber optic internet. So if you don't have those things, you can't sell home sites. So those things take years and years. Right. So in the interim, like that's a reason, you know, to do a founding member program, you know, is those folks are coming in early and they're taking a risk that hopefully, you know, you'll get all those things done. And if you don't get any of them done, your project is cratered. Yeah. So right. you, you can't just get six of the seven things if you don't get your zoning done, if you don't get your sewer done. And these things are incredibly expensive and incredibly complex. But it was great from the beginning to get people who were really bought in and excited about our project, you know, to come in early and, and you know, be our partners. Yeah. I'm sure you knew all of that before you started into this deal too, right? We we didn't know any of this, you know, and again, Greg, you know, knew much of it. And, uh, you know, from the beginning, we were, you know, we were, you know, we were looking for, you know, developers who'd done projects like this before, architects and, you know, land planners. And, you know, it turns out that there are many people who have, you know, 
done, you know, resort development before. There's many people who have designed ski resorts before. There's many people who've done, you know, urban planning and land planning before. So, you know, we spent years trying to find these experts and then bringing them onto our team, hiring them as consultants, and, you know, through that process, you know, learning about it ourselves. I wanted you to tell that story specifically because of your book with Make No Small Plans. People who listen to the show, a lot of them are just trying to kind of figure life out. And our whole goal is to get people to start questioning the belief systems that they were that they were raised on. And a lot of times those belief systems are limiting uh, in terms of the things that you can do in life. To, to your point from earlier, it's go to school, it's get a good job, it's do this certain thing and behave this certain way because this is how society is going to reward you and blah, blah, blah. And when we talk with people like you who were basically just like, eh, I kind of want to do a lot more than that. And nobody said that I can, right? Like I, I to your point, to your own, you know, point, I you know, didn't get into Harvard. You weren't going to graduate at the top of your class and get a job at some like Wall Street, something or other, like, but you still were able to decide at some point that this is the type of life that I want to go after. And the only thing standing in between me and that life is figuring out the steps that are going to get me there. So first off, just want to acknowledge you and your your co-founders, business partners, and everybody um, in your life for setting the example, leading the way, forging a path that other people can kind of follow. Uh, so with your, with your guys' book, uh, Make No Small Plans, first off, where can we get it? Do you want us to pick it up at a certain a certain place or anywhere you buy books? And then second, what's like the number one idea or takeaway that you want your readers to get from the book? Well, you can buy the book, you know, any book site or store, make no small plans, search, uh, and it comes out April 12th. You know, based on what you just said, you know, the thing that I most, that most helped me over all the years was having a community around me. And having really, you know, even, even a few people, right? And I, for my whole career since I was in college, have cold called and cold messaged and cold emailed random people that were my peers, not celebrities, not famous people, not people running big companies. I've cold emailed people who are my peers and become friends with them like hundreds of times. You know, it could even be now, you know, a, a young, you know, a young TikToker that I'll, you know, reach out to yeah. or, you know, anything I want to learn about, you know, someone I, you know, it can be a local person, uh, you know, it could be a local restaurant I eat at that I'm just super impressed. And I, 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 you know, ask if I can, you know, meet the chef or meet the owner, right? I mean, I really love meeting people and I find there's just so much to learn and that there's, you know, especially if you feel stifled because the people around you aren't entrepreneurs, like, that is the reality of this island. You know, I think about the 10,000 islands in Florida. There's 10,000 of them. But when you're on any one of them, you cannot see the others because they're all flat. But if you just got up a little bit more, you'd realize there's 10,000. It's insane. Yeah. And there are so many entrepreneurs in every single city and town. And there's so many entrepreneurs of every age, of 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 50-year-olds. And I cannot encourage people enough to just reach out, even if it's a few folks to other entrepreneurs who are just like you and just start getting together with them. Like I, I just, I literally do that all the time and I've done it for 15 years and I love it. And it's been very, very helpful. If you're listening to this, you guys have heard me say this 
more times than I can even count at this point, but it's all about that community. It's all about the people that you're getting around and, you know, show me the people that, that you're around right now and I'll show you who you're going to be in five years from now. So Elliot, thanks for coming on the show, man. Eric, you got anything else? I think that's it. Awesome, dude. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. If you're listening to this right now, please, please, please do us a massive favor. Go pick up a copy of Elliot's new book. And I, I say do us a favor, but really you're doing yourself a favor because anytime you can digest some information and compress years of experience from somebody like this into just a few chapters on some written pages, um, you should definitely take advantage of that opportunity. So go pick up a copy of Make No Small Plans and do it right now. Do it before you forget. It's always a rule on the show. If you recommend a book, go buy it before you forget or else it's just going to you know, move down to the bottom of your Amazon list and uh, uh, it'll never make it to your front door. So Make No Small Plans, go pick up a copy, follow Elliot on, on social. He's always putting out some great stuff over there. Elliot, thanks again for coming to the show, man. This is a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.